Times. Good morning. So, how many, how many of you were here last week or have caught up with the sermon online from last week? Hands in the air. Okay, a lot. Good. Good. If you haven't, let me encourage you to catch up with last week's talk. We, st- we started talking about power, and this week is kind of part two. Now, it should make sense anyway, so don't be, don't be kind of go, oh, I didn't hear it, I'm off. Um, I think it should make sense anyway, but we started talking about power and the problems with power. Um, we talked about how we use power in our language, how we, um, where power comes from, sometimes how we use power in our marriage. Um, we talked about how our words are significant and we need to soak them in love. And it's been really encouraging, actually, this week to have a number of people talk to me about how they've carried those conversations on. A number of people talk to me about how in, in your marriages you've been having conversations this week going, so what does that power dynamic look like? Do we do that? Do we not do that? Is that you know? So if you have been having that conversation and you think you're the only people having that conversation this week, you're not. Actually, a lot of you are having that conversation this week. And it's, that's really encouraging that we try and work this stuff out. But I want to carry on this week and carry on talking about Power, but what does it look like? Because we looked at a lot of the problems with power last week. How it shuts down relationships, how, it, how we like to dominate, we like to be in control, we like to, um, that all our relationships kind of get tainted with this power dynamic. That our language, our words, sometimes can, well often, can be tainted with this power language. All our systems that we live within are problematic. How when sometimes you know, we'll, we'll swear on something or we'll use a phrase or we'll kind of go, I promise you this or I swear this or on, you know, cross my heart and hope to die was a thing that I used to say as a child or whatever it might be. And it was kind of this like, that's the end of the conversation. It's the absolute. We're done. I promise you. I swear on this. And we do it in the church too. You know, sometimes we'll go, oh, God says... Well, that'll shut a conversation down, won't it? Well, okay, well, I can't argue with that then. If God's saying this, well, I'm out, right? Or we'll say, the Bible says. And we use the Bible in quite a powerful way sometimes, but not necessarily in the powerful way that we're supposed to use it. And so power, and power is um, an interesting thing for us to try and work out how we use it well. And when we look at Jesus and how he operates in the Bible, what he talks about, what we see going on in the Bible, actually we see him challenging powers. If you remember when we were looking at Mark, we talked a lot about how Jesus would challenge the political powers and the religious powers and the spiritual powers. When Jesus is baptized, we see this fabulous imagery. He's baptized as he comes out of the water. Mark says that this dove descends from heaven. And there's this voice saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and we might go, well, that's a lovely idea. But actually, the dove is a very significant thing. Because, because Caesar was regarded as a god. Caesar, the head of this hugely powerful and violent empire, was all about power. And when Caesar was inaugurated, a an eagle would be used, and an eagle would be used in the ceremony to land on him at some point, and then he would be declared son of the gods. So when we see in Mark this dove descending, and this voice saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, there's a clear parallel with what happens in Caesar. There's a clear challenge. 
And the imagery of the dove against the imagery of the eagle is very significant because the eagle is all about power and might and strength and force. And the dove says, this kingdom is not about that. This kingdom is not like that. This kingdom is about meekness, about humility, about love. This kingdom is not going to overthrow the kingdom of power with power. It's going to overthrow the kingdom of power with love. And we get this stark imagery. And the imagery carries on. The first miracle, the first miracle that we see in Mark is Jesus in the, in the synagogue. And there's a guy there who's possessed by a demon, and Jesus casts the demon out of the guy. And we go, well, that's a very interesting miracle. But actually, when we understand what's going on there, the writer is pointing out to us that the religious powers and the spiritual powers are entwined together, are in bed together, are working together. That when Jesus comes to challenge the spiritual powers and the political powers and the religious powers, he's saying, look, the religious powers and the spiritual powers are... They're entwined with each other. They're, they're working together. They're conspiring together. You will find the spiritual powers right in the heart of the religious centers of power. And then, you see, Jesus is going on his ministry and carrying it. And then Jesus goes out of the Jewish area into the Gentile area. And the first miracle we see in the Gentile area is Jesus casting the demons out of the guy and casting them into the pigs. And in this story... There's this guy, and, he's, and Jesus is talking to the demons and going, so what's your name? And they say, our name is Legion, because there are many of us. But Legion is a word synonymous with the Roman Empire. So the first miracle in the Jewish area is Jesus casting demons out right from the religious center of power. And the first miracle in the Gentile area is Jesus casting demons out and there's this synergy, this statement kind of saying the, the spiritual powers and the political powers are synonymous. They're entwined together. So Jesus came to challenge power. That's what we see. And doves are also significant, not just because they descend on um, Jesus when he's being baptized, but they're also significant because they're an um, important sacrifice. So later on, towards the end of the gospel, when we see Jesus in the temple, and he comes up to the temple, and you might remember the story where Jesus is turning over the tables in the temple and throwing people out of the temple and shutting the whole temple system down. And it talks about him kicking out the money lenders and the money changers, but it also talks about him kicking over the tables where they were selling the doves, because doves are important. And doves are important because if you look at the Old Testament, when it talks about what sacrifices you should make, it says you should sacrifice a lamb in this circumstance, or you should sacrifice a, a goat in this circumstance, or you should sacrifice a whatever in this circumstance. But if you can't afford that, if you can't afford a lamb, sacrifice a dove. Doves were the sacrifice of choice for the people who were impoverished, for the people who didn't have, for the people who were on the outside. Doves were the sacrifice of choice for the people who had nothing. And we see this system going on in this temple 
where what they were doing was, they said, well, you have to, if you want to be pure, if you want to be right with God, if you want to be saved, if you want to be one of the insiders, one of the good Jewish people, then you have to make your sacrifices in the temple. But you can only sacrifice animals that we've checked, lambs that have been raised, prepared for sacrifice, doves that have been bred, prepared for sacrifice. So you can only buy our animals, and you can only buy them with our money. You can't use Roman money, you have to use Jewish temple money. And so what the temple was doing was saying, well, because people were being paid, whatever they were being paid, they were being paid in Roman money. So they'd have to come, exchange their money at ridiculously extortionate exchange rates, to get the money to buy the sacrifice, and then they would buy the lamb, or if they couldn't afford a lamb, they would buy a dove. And we have evidence from that time that in around this time, in the 15 years around this time, the price of doves had gone up 100 times. So if it was a pound, now it was 100 pounds. It was extortion at its highest level. And this is what Jesus came to challenge. And so doves, doves were this symbol of, if you can't afford it, then this is just sacrifice a dove. And yet this system of power was using that to extort money out of the people that they were supposed to be looking after. And that is why Jesus shut the temple down. That is why he turned the tables over. That's why he threw them out. It wasn't they were selling t-shirts at the back to the tourists. It was that they were extorting money out of the very people they were supposed to be caring for. This system of power was the entire antithesis of what God wanted his people to be about. Where do we abuse our power, extort? Where do we oppress people who are the very people we should be loving, caring for? Where do we exclude people who are the very people that we should be including, loving, making sure they have access to a relationship with God? Because this is what's going on in this system. And Jesus does this profoundly radical, revolutionary thing. And he shuts the temple down. Now, same time, we see this story in Mark. And he he is looking, and he's, he's coming back into Jerusalem to go back to the temple, to talk to the people again, to see what's going on. And he's looking at the temple mount the mountain, the hill, the center of Jerusalem, this religious center of the entire Jewish faith. And he's looking at it, and he says, if you have enough faith, and you say to this mountain to be thrown into the sea, it will be thrown into the sea. Now I know that we have taken that, we sing about that. Faith will move the mountains. And if there's challenges in our life, if we have enough faith, those mountains will move. The aspect of that that we probably miss is Jesus is looking at this mountain which is the religious center of power. And he says, if you have enough faith and you say to this mountain to be thrown into the sea, you can bring the whole religious system down. Because the religious system is about power which is the antithesis of what God wants it to be about. And so then what Jesus does, 
You start to see why they had to kill Jesus, right? You start to see why, they, why he was so dangerous. He wasn't just a lovely guy that they didn't like him doing lovely things. He was revolutionary and radical. He was threatening their whole religious system. He was threatening what they perceived to be the peace that they had established in that whole area, the unhappy alliance they had with the Roman Empire. They had to kill him. And he talks about bringing down the whole religious system. And then he does some really radical things. Because he starts talking to the people and he starts saying things like, as you forgive, so you're forgiven. Which you might think, well, that's a lovely idea. Except forgiveness was the business of the temple. That's where they made so much of their money. You had to buy the sacrifices to be forgiven. You had to buy in their money, and you had to buy their sacrifices. This was their whole business model. And Jesus suddenly starts going around forgiving people for free. Well, you're not allowed to do that. That's called undercutting in the market. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's undercutting them. And he's going, I'm just going to forgive people for free. And not only am I going to forgive people for free, but you can forgive people too. The nobodies, the anybodies, the outsiders is going, as you forgive, so you'll be forgiven. He is decentralizing all the power that they have amassed because power always amasses at the center. And Jesus disperses this power. And he says, as you forgive, so you're forgiven. He gives them the authority. And then he says some other crazy things. He says things like, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That whole binding and loosing was about the laws, like what's okay and what's not okay, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, what's in and what's out, which was decided by the religious powers, was decided by the religious center. They were the police force on what was okay and what wasn't okay, what was bound and what was loose. That was their decision. And Jesus starts saying to the nobodies, what you bind is bound and what you loose is loosed. He disperses the power and the authority that the temple holds. Then he starts saying things like, you will do greater things than me, and you will do the same things as me. He starts saying things like, whatever you ask for in my name will be given to you, whatever you pray for. But that's a problem, because prayer, prayer was the currency of the religious system. You had to go to the temple to pray. That's what kept you in. They decided whether your prayers were accepted or not, whether you were forgiven or not. They decided whether you were clean or not, whether you could enter or not. Prayer, they were the people who spoke to God. You were the people who did what the powerful people said. And Jesus says, you can have this relationship with the Father. Whatever you ask for, in my name, will be given to you. He disperses and decentralizes and tears down the power that is centralized and disperses it to all the people. Because power is at its best when it's dispersed. And it, at its worst when it's centralized.
what we see with the Holy Spirit is the dispersal of power. Because we are filled with the Spirit, we are able to speak with the authority, we're able to, to heal, to cast out demons, to do all the things of power, of authority. But what's really important to understand here, we don't do it for our own glory, for our own power, for our own reputation, for our own empire. Because as we have said many times from here, we are blessed to be a blessing. When God disperses that power of the Holy Spirit to us, it is so that spirit of power is dispersed through us to the world around us. Power is always to give away. And it becomes dangerous when we try and hold on to it, when we try and defend it, when we try and preserve it. We are indwelt by the Spirit. Not so we can be all the people who are right and have all the power and everything we do is good and everything else is, is wrong. We are indwelt with the Spirit so that the world is transformed, so that we can give this away, so that we can disperse this into our communities, into our workplaces. When we prayer walk, we're not just making wishes to some fairy in the sky, we are speaking with an authority that we are given to be a blessing, to speak blessing and life and love and hope into the community around us. We have this power to give away this power, which is quite different from how we see power operate in the world, right? And we're reminded about this in 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about love. Love is patient, love is kind, and all those sorts of things. And then Paul goes on to say, you know, you can do all these things. You can do amazing things, but if you don't have love, you can prophesy, but if you don't have love, you're just a clanging symbol. We can do incredible things, but if we don't do it with love, we're entirely missing the point. Which comes back to what we were talking about last week, about that our words be soaked in love. That our actions be drenched in love. Love is the characteristic of the gospel. God is love, it says in 1 John. Not God is an expression of love. God is some forms of love. God is love. Love is right at the center of the gospel that we're supposed to live out. So how do we live out this kingdom, this power? How do we align ourselves with God's purposes? How do we live as participants in this kingdom, as children of God, as people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God with this power that can heal, that can free, that can forgive, that can redeem, that can restore, that can renew, that can challenge the powers that amass and oppress and, and, and destroy. How do we live this well? And I think there are a few lessons in Scripture for us here. There are a few um, attitudes that we can take upon ourselves. One of those is submission. 
One of the principles we talk about in the leadership team is I lead the leadership team and I submit to the team. Which is an interesting dynamic sometimes. But we submit to one another. You know, often you'll hear people arguing about the whole, you know, in Ephesians it talks about wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives and, and that can get into all sorts of debates. And actually what we, very, what we can very often do with that is make it a power play. You need to do this because the Bible says you need to do this. Ah, oh, well, you need to do this. I remember as a child, I used to have these arguments with my parents. They used to tell me, you know, the Bible says obey your parents. And I used to, yeah, but the Bible also says fathers don't exasperate your children. So, you know, where are we at here? <laughs> Having theological, biblical arguments like backwards or forwards with your parents is an interesting dynamic. But, you know, like, we can all find scriptures that we can use to attack people. We can all find scriptures that we can use to defend ourselves, to say that we're right and you're wrong. You have to do this because the Bible says you have to do this. But it's just another power play, which is the opposite of what God intended. It's the antithesis of who Jesus is. It's anti-kingdom. It's anti-Christ when we use things for power. Even scripture, maybe especially scripture. And people will use that. Kind of go, oh yeah, but the Bible says wives submit to your husbands. Oh, but the Bible says husbands love your wives. And we can have this. But actually, the verse before it says, submit to one another out of love. Submit to one another. Whatever position you hold or think you hold, submit to one another. Now that's a lesson to live by. That's a principle to apply. What does that look like for us? Where is our privilege? This isn't just about me. This is about our societies. This is about our nation. This is about our politics. This is, you know, as a as a white male, I carry a certain amount of privilege in this world. It's important that I recognize that. And one of the best postures I can assume is to submit to one another. Submitting to one another, preferring one another, allowing others who, whilst the Structures of the world might say that we have authority over them. Choosing to submit that authority, to submit to them and allow them to speak into our lives, allow them to challenge, allow them to correct, allow them to, to be in a relationship with us is, is a posture that we should assume. Submitting to one another seems to me to be one of the key verses in Scripture. Submit to one another. Because you, I'm sure people do, but it's quite difficult to go, oh, the Bible says that you should submit to one another without including yourself in the challenge. Submit to one another. Because our ego, 
See, we build up this ego, we build up our identity around our status, around who I have authority over. I build up this ego over who I'm better than, or who I'm stronger than, or who I'm richer than, or who I'm whatever. And we can build up our ego and our status, and so we're trying to be more. We're trying to get richer, and we're trying to get more powerful, and we're trying to get what better positions at work, or we're trying to whatever, so we have more, so we can be happier with ourselves, so we can be more content, so we can be have you know, more security, whatever it is that we think, where we find our identity. And the Bible says, submit. Stop fighting to try and prove something. You know, a whole system is built on this sort of competitive edge where I have to be better than you, I have to be stronger or richer, whatever it is. I have to be, our whole system is built on that. Our whole marketing, advertising industry is built on that. Our political systems are built on that. And the Bible says, submit to one another. It's a powerful challenge. And it can lead us to, you know, the best way we can do that is through contentment. Contentment is a big, strong, often not talked about biblical principle. Contentment's a really important thing because actually, if we live in this society where we're all at odds with each other, I'm trying to be better than you, I'm trying to, you know, when I'm watching all these, this whole advertising industry telling me that if I was as beautiful as them, or if I was as rich as them, or if I drove the same car as them, or if I went on the same holidays as them, if I lived in the same house as them, if I, you know, we're all trying to be better than the next person. Spend a lot of our time looking at other people going, oh yeah, but it's easy for them. If I had their opportunities, if I had their wealth, if my dad gave me the millions that Donald Trump's dad gave him, I'd do a better job. But that's just competition. That comes out of a lack. That comes out of a spirit of judgment and condemnation and lack and not enough. That comes out of a crisis of ego. The Bible talks about us being content. The Tenth Commandment says, don't, don't covet what your neighbors have. Don't desire to be them, to have their family, or to have their career, or to have their whatever, or their, their wealth, or their position in society, or whatever it might be. Don't crave that. Be content. Understand who God called you to be, and be that person. Understand who God created you to be and be that person. Rachel often says, like, if you fully understood who God created you to be, you would not want to be anybody else. Think about that. So when we feel envy, when we cover or desire what other people have, when we wish we had their opportunities or their whatever it was, recognize that comes out of a lack of understanding of who God called you to be. That comes out of a lack of identity. That comes out of a false ego, a false self that is masking something, that is hiding something. Be content in who God has created you to be, and then pour yourself into being that person. And the more we understand that, the more we understand that God is a loving God who loves us, who created us, who is for us, who has a purpose and a plan for us, the more I understand who I'm created to be, and the more I find contentment in who I'm created to be, the less of a threat you are to me. 
And if you're not a threat to me anymore, well, then I'm free to see who God created you to be. And then I can pull myself, I can submit myself to seeing you become who God created you to be. This is how power is lived out well. I can draw on the power and the authority and the love of the spirit that is within me to see you become who you're created to be. I can give it away. I can disperse it. I can speak blessing over you. I can speak life over you. I can make myself less to advance you. This is what power looks like. I think one of the other things that we need to understand is because rooted in that is humility. Humility is an often misunderstood word, and I've been guilty of that myself. So let me tell you a quick story. When we're going back about 11 years now, and we were kind of in the transition, I used to be youth leader here, and then we were in this transition where I was kind of moving from being youth leader to leading the leadership team, and I had a few months to try and figure that out. And during that time, I was... Um, heading off to Brazil, and, and during that time, God had been talking to me about some of the things I'm going to need to take on this role, and just, God just kind of kept saying to me, every time, this was about for about two years, every time somebody asks what you can pray for, what they can pray for for you, ask them to pray for humility and wisdom. And I'm like, fair enough, I'll do that, whatever that means. So any, you know, anyone come to me, oh, anything I can pray for you? I go, yeah, just pray for humility and wisdom, and that's what they'd pray for, and that was lovely, and that happened a lot over a long period of time. And then I was just about to head off to Brazil for this trip, and um, I remember I was here, and I was near the front of the stage, and um, I think it was Sarah came to me, and said, kind of, Adam, what can I pray for you for your trip? I was like, humility and wisdom. She's like, okay, great. So I close my eyes, and she closes her eyes, and I'm there, and I'm like... Nothing. Nothing. So I open my eyes to see if she's still there. I go, are you all right? She's like, yeah. I um, can't pray for humility and wisdom. I'm like, what? She says, God says that he's given you that, so we need to pray for something else. I'm like, what? What does that mean? I don't feel very humble, and I certainly don't feel very wise. And like, what? And she's like, just do whatever God says, which is a beautiful thing in itself, if we could all just do that. Can you imagine? And um, so anyway, I was a little bit miffed. I was a little bit put out. I was a little bit confused. I went off to Brazil, and then I'm in this, this big conference. People from all over the world, there's about 5,000 people there, and, and I'm, um, so I'm doing a bit of speaking there, but I'm also doing a lot of listening there, and I'm in this one seminar, and there's this guy at the front giving this phenomenal sermon, some guy from Holland, and he's giving this really animated, passionate sermon all about humility. Amen. Fabulous. So we get to the end, and he's like, sir, if you want humility, come forward. I'm like, bang, I am in. This is my this is my thing. So I'm straightforward, not just me, two or three hundred others. And he goes, right, so kneel down. So I'm on my knees. I'm like, yes, come on. And this guy starts praying. No idea what he's praying. I'm knelt there. And I hear this. Uh, Adam, what are you doing? Like God's saying, Adam, what are you doing? I'm like, 
praying. Be with you in a minute. I'm just, just receiving the blessing right now. Because like, I don't want you praying for. Like, what? What do you mean? I'm humility. He's like, Adam, get up. I'm like, what? He said, I've told you. Get up. Now? It's like, get up now. Go back to your seat. So, I had to stand up. Whilst this guy is praying, for these two or three hundred people who are knelt on the floor, I have to stand up, tiptoe through them, excuse me, excuse me, sorry, sculper, sculper, all this, all these different, so sorry, tiptoeing through this crowd of people. I mean, if anything's going to teach humility, that's going to teach you humility. And I've got to get back to my seat, and I'm like going, oh my goodness, what was that? So I went to the guy afterwards, and I'm like, um... Just thought I probably need to come and explain why I stood up in the middle of your prayer and thought, no, this isn't for me, I'm off. Like, thought I need to explain. I was like, she goes, so I told him the story. And I went, but the thing is, I said, I don't feel very humble. And he said, but humility is not a feeling, right? I mean, we know that, don't we? And I kind of give him, you know that knowing, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, sorry, go on, what are you talking about? What do you mean it's not a feeling? Because I just, and he's like, Humility is just the understanding that it's God who does it all. That's humility. And I was like, oh. Oh, no, I get that completely. He's like, yeah, that's probably why God told you to stand up and walk back to your seat then. I was like, oh. Humility is not the feeling, but we make it so much about our feelings, right? Oh, do I feel humble? Do I feel... And actually, we root it in about, well, do I feel good enough? But actually, not feeling good enough is all part of not understanding who we're created to be. Humility is actually knowing who you're created to be and living in that, being content with that and recognizing that it's God who does it. It's all him. And you see, what we often think of about humility is, oh, no, sorry, couldn't possibly. I'm sorry, sorry. Please don't compliment me or please don't. Oh, no, it's not me. I'm just, oh, my goodness me. No, I'm not good enough and I couldn't possibly. And that's just another form of pride. That isn't understanding who we're created to be. That's just talking ourselves down. That's not humility. That's pride. Humility. Humility is recognizing that it's God who does it all. It's all from him. It's all about him. It's all for him. All I need to do is do the very thing he's calling me to do. This is what Jesus talks about when he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. It's a deep assurance and knowledge of who he's created to be. When Paul says, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain, it's a deep knowledge that it's God who does it all. And he just needs to do what God calls him to do. He just needs to be who God calls him to be. Because humility is the greatest defense against the delusions of power that we can fall into. That somehow I'm better. Somehow I'm greater. Somehow I'm stronger. Somehow my worth is built by having more. When actually a lot of that's just luck and good fortune. Like it doesn't... 
humility. So humility isn't going, oh, you know, no, please don't say I'm good at this, or please don't say I'm good at that. No, I couldn't possibly. Humility is saying, these are the gifts God has given me for his kingdom. This is where God has called me to serve for his kingdom. This is who God has called me to be for his kingdom. And so I have total faith that he will give me everything I need to do it. Because it's all him. This isn't about me. But I need to be confident and recognize. You know, we know that Joe is a great worship leader, don't we? But if Joe was like, oh, no, 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 please, no, it's not about me. It's, uh, we'd all just want to punch him. <laughs> Actually, it's better that he goes, yeah, no, no, this, is, this, this is the gifting God's put in me. This is who God's called me to be, and I'm going to do whatever God's called me to do with it, whatever it costs. That's who we're called to be. Whatever your gifting is, whoever you're called to be, wherever you're called to serve, it's about obedience. I saw a great quote this week that said, the straightest path to humility is obedience. Just do what God's called you to do. Just be who God's called you to be. The straightest path to humility is obedience. And humility is the posture, is the attitude we need to hold. If we're going to be distributors, conduits of God's power into our communities, if we're going to challenge the systems of power that amass and accumulate, if we're going to resist the temptations of power to think that we're better than we are somehow, or more important than we are somehow, Humility is how we wear power well. So let's be people who are obedient. Julie, do you want to come up? Also a great worship leader. Do you want to come up and lead us in response to that? Let us be people who are obedient. Let us be people who do not accumulate power for ourselves but understand who we're called to be for the kingdom. Let us be people who submit to one another, who love and soak our actions and our words in love. And if God has, if, you, if you've been fighting this, either with the, no, I'm too busy, I'll do that another time, whatever it is that God's calling you to do, whoever it is that God's calling you to be, or if God has put gifting in you and you're somehow refusing to use it because it's like, oh no, but there's people much better at that than I am. Oh no, I can't possibly because, oh no, what was I'm not good enough or I'm not strong enough or I'm not courageous enough or I'm not whatever enough. Maybe this morning is a morning when you say, you know what? I just want to be who God called me to be and created me to be. I just want to do what God called me to do and created me to do. I'm just going to be obedient. I want to be somebody who learns to live a life of humility. I want to be a conduit of God's power and blessing in the world. And if that's us this morning, then we would love to pray with you about that. If there's a moment of surrender and submitting that you need to do this morning, we would love to pray with you as we worship. So why don't we, why don't we stand? Judy, do you want to... Leaders in a song, and as we start singing, 
I'm going to get the prayer ministry team out here at the front. If you need to submit this morning, if you need to surrender, if you need to stop fighting, if you need to let your false pride fall to the ground. Then come forward and we'll pray for you.